Yeah, hey everybody. I think that there, it might say a little bit something about us that I still, for first service and this service, I heard more singing from you guys on that song than all the other songs. So, just saying. Uh, it's a pretty awesome song. I'm going to be honest, I am, I'm more of a sucker for the John Mayer version than the Tom Petty version. I'm sorry, yeah, I knew there'd be somebody be mad at me for that, but uh, we, we actually were not going to do this song this morning. Um, so there's a different song that we had planned to do. The song is called Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. A song from 1992. I was about 11 years old. Now, both of these songs, Under the Bridge, Free Fallen, they were, when I was in high school, they were like, they were the songs. And I, but I, particularly, I remember Under the Bridge it was a song that we'd go on a road trip for basketball, and we'd get back in the bus, and if we won the game, we were all excited on the way home. And so under the bridge, we'd, we'd, we'd get that song on, and every single one of us guys knew every single word to that song, and we would sing it awesomely. Well, this is probably not very awesome, actually. Um, but I, I actually just found out, like in this last week, some of the last words in the song Under the Bridge are, Under the Bridge Downtown. And I just found out in this last week what that last word was. I never knew it was downtown. I would just go, under the bridge, downtown. And I would do it well enough, though, everybody's like, oh, he knows the song. I didn't. But the reason we didn't do under the bridge is because Eric decided to look up what it meant, and we found out it was just about drugs. So we figured we wouldn't sing that at church. I don't know what free falling's about. We didn't, I don't know. But anyhow, um, but I, I do, I wanted to share just, it's kind of, kind of an embarrassing story about, free fall, uh, about Under the Bridge. Um, so year's 1998. song's been out for about six years. And me and my girlfriend, who's now my wife, we were dating for about a year at this point, and she went off to college. And so I was super lonely. I was super sad. And I go out in my car, which I actually named my car C, because her name is Crystal, my wife. And I, you know, I named my car after my wife, obviously. Um, and so I'm really lonely, I'm sad, and I'm driving around, and I put the song Under the Bridge on. And so here's, here's the, verse, the first verse of that song. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is a city I live in, the city of angels. Lonely as I am, together we cry. I drive on her streets because she's my companion. And so I'm, I'm singing these words out, and as I'm singing them, you might imagine I'm a little bit of an emotional guy. I was bawling my eyes out. Because I'm, I'm thinking, man, this is my life. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. She went to college. I was sad. And sometimes I feel like my only friend's the city I live in. I, I drive on the streets because it's now my only companion because my girlfriend's in college. And I just bawled my eyes out. And I put it on repeat, and I just wept and wept and wept. And sometimes you just got to have a good cry, right, guys? No? All right. Well, so now that you guys all think way less of me, I was watching the last, last episode of New Amsterdam this week. I'm not going to lie. I cried like four different times, but that's just what I do. Uh, why would we sing these songs at church? Some, some of you might be like, man, this is weird. It's because we're in this series, Belong, and uh, we're talking about these different generations. Two weeks ago, David um, highlighted the builder's generation. Last week, Eric highlighted the baby boomer generation. And so this week, I get to highlight the, the Gen X, the Generation X um, people. And that's actually, I'm like right in the middle between Gen X and the millennial generation. Um, 
Gen X is typically people born in the early 60s to the mid 60s up through the early 80s. I'm an 81 child. And so there's different things that come about with these different generations, different societal norms going on in, in the world that causes people born in that generation to be a little different. And the typical thing with Gen X people is we tend to be skeptics. And part of the reason for this is uh, we were people that typically had a little bit less adult supervision in their lives than the generations previous to that. Reasons for that, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Divorce rates were higher. Uh, moms were getting into the workforce a little bit more. And actually, one of the things that I found was interesting is there wasn't childcare available like you have today. And so there was just, sometimes kids were on their own a little bit more. And so we, we were skeptical. We, were, we, we had some doubt. We didn't know what to trust and all that stuff. And um, for me, though, I've always thought it was just normal living to be skeptical. Like, if you're not pretty skeptical about things, like, you're not, you're not living right. And you go to, if you go to a, a car salesman, <clears throat> and you're walking around the car dealership, and if you don't look at the price tag on the window and know that it's going to be $3,000 more, you're, just, you're, not, you're not so very smart, right? You've got to be skeptical of that. If you have a really good day today, you should know your day tomorrow is going to be awful. That's just the way it is. If you go to the store and a gallon of milk is on sale and it's not past its expiration date, you know that milk has been tampered with somehow. Obviously. Um, or it's not even real milk. It's like cat's milk. <laughs> Man, they putting cat's milk in that thing. Or, or it's even worse. It's like almond milk. Ugh. Yeah, I know. But we're skeptical of stuff. That's just, that's kind of, especially us Gen X people, we skeptical. But I, I don't think that that's exactly the way that God has asked us to wanted us to live. It's become this unhealthy thing that we've adopted. Maybe it's a coping mechanism. Maybe we've, we've, we've experienced enough pain, um, and so now we just don't want to, we don't want to experience pain. So, man, if, if I just believe things are going to be awful, when it happens, it's not going to be as bad, as bad of a situation. But as we're talking about belonging, you can see how this would be a, a pretty difficult thing for us to belong if we're constantly skeptical. If I if I don't believe that the person that I'm, I, I'm starting to get close to is going to stick around, it's going to be tough for me to connect with them. Um, how can I place myself in a relationship with people if I'm constantly discontent and, and skeptical of things around me, people around me? And I don't think that this is just a Gen X problem. I think this is an us problem. I think all of us struggle with this to some degree. How can I feel like I belong when I'm skeptical of the motives of other people and when I'm feeling discontent, discontent with the, what the people around me have to offer? So today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the story of Jonah. And the reason for that is Jonah, Jonah could have been born in this Gen X generation. Jonah was a skeptical, discontent dude. He wanted to be alone. He wanted to be able to leave other people alone. He was a Gen Xer. Uh, his story begins with a call from God. I want you to think, uh, when, you've, when you feel like you've been, had a call from God, what is your initial reaction? What's that initial reaction when you feel like God has called you to something? There's, uh, I know for me, a lot of times that initial thing is, man, I'm, God, I'm pretty skeptical about what you're, you're saying right here. As a pastor, one thing that, that I, I feel that there's a, a, a calling to is 
when people come and visit church or kids come and visit youth group, like I should make a connection with them there. But in the week after, I should try to make a connection with them. But the introverted part of me is always like, okay, I'm feeling like I need to call somebody. Really, can I just text them? Like it's so much easier. And some people like being texted more anyhow. It's a little less invasive. But there's times where I'm feeling, okay, God, you're, you're, I know you're asking me to, to make a little bit bigger connection. And sometimes it's just, especially for somewhat introverted people at times, it, it, like it's scary to think about doing that. And I can think of one, one particular um, situation. Uh, there was a kid in my youth group, and I may have mentioned this before, but there was a kid in my youth group a, a while back who her mom died in a really tragic way. And in the months leading up to her mom's death, her, this girl and I, we just, we weren't connecting. We weren't getting along. Um, she, she, she was mad at me for something. And when her mom died, there was something in me that's like, I know I got to connect with her. But I, I was legitimately scared if I called her, she, would just, she wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. And so I gave her a text. Um, I got some kids from the youth group to, to join me and to go to her mom's funeral. But I'll be honest, it was, it's one of my biggest regrets still to this day that I did not step out of my comfort zone to connect with her in a way that would have maybe mattered a little more. Um, by God's grace, he, he kind of brought the two of us together. We reconnected and ended up bringing her on a mission trip to Spain, watched her give her testimony on the streets of Madrid. It was awesome. But there was a real, a real possibility that my skepticism towards God's call for me in how I should connect with that girl that it could have had devastating effects to her faith because that skepticism that I had. And Jonah's in a, in a situation a lot like that. Jonah has skepticism in what God calls him to do. And that skepticism could have really led to an, an eternally devastating situation for the people in this city of Nineveh. Uh, so we start off here in the first couple verses of Jonah chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. Now, Jonah absolutely freaks out when he hears God say, say this to him. And he doesn't freak out because of the reason that a lot of us would freak out. Like, you're telling me to go preach? I ain't, ain't going to go do that. He's okay with the preaching part. He is not okay with the going and telling the Ninevites that bad things are going to happen if they don't turn, turn their lives around. He doesn't like it because he does not like the Ninevite people. Now, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that situation where there's this person that, man, you don't want them to have their come to Jesus moment? You just don't want them to experience the grace of God because, man, they, they deserve what's coming to them. It's a crazy thing that we can get our contentment in the idea that God is going to give judgment or wrath out to, to a certain person. Like, we don't want them to get into this club. We don't want them to belong in the thing that we belong to. Now, if you're a sports fan, you probably know more than most what this feels like. I think that sports shows me just how awful my sinful nature is. It's part of what I love about it. So as a sports fan, there are people that I cannot cheer for. And not only can I not cheer for them, the only thing that I can find within me to do is to cheer against them. Maybe they're, they're so good that they never let my team win, or maybe, they're, maybe I think that they got attitude on the court or whatever. LeBron James, he ain't never going to be Michael Jordan, people. Right, Doug? Yeah, I knew Doug would like that one. James Harden, man, the dude travels all the time. Can't stand it. Chris, Chris Paul, he's teammates with James Harden. That's enough. 
but then he flops all the time. I can't stand that. Aaron Rodgers, I don't even need to go there, do I, people? As a Vikings fan, can't stand the guy, okay? I cheer so heartily against these people that they will lose. But what is it in me and probably in you too that gets us to the point that we actually find satisfaction in people that we don't like for whatever reason having bad things happen to them? There's something inside of all of us where there tends to be a little bit of that. And that's the kind of attitude that Jonah had for the Ninevites. He didn't want them to get into the club that he was in. He didn't want them to belong. He wanted the worst for them. And so what Jonah does is Jonah decides to get on a boat. He's like, okay, so Nineveh's over there. I'm going to go that way. And he gets on a boat with a bunch of sailors, goes the opposite direction. And while he's on this boat, a big hurricane-like storm comes. And as they're in this boat, all these sailors, they're freaking out. They're like, man, we, somebody in this boat did something to upset the gods. And so they take lots, and they're trying to figure out who, who's the one that, that angered the gods, and it comes up to Jonah. And... These sailors are actually pretty good people. They don't want to kill Jonah. They don't want to do anything. But the storm keeps getting worse and worse. And so finally, they come to Jonah, and they're like, hey, Jonah, what should we do? And Jonah does, I think, the first honorable thing in this entire story. He's like, guys, if you throw me overboard, everything's going to be fine. Still, the sailors don't want to do it. They don't want to take this guy's life but it gets to that point where they can't do anything else, and so they throw him overboard. Now, I want you to just put yourself in that position of Jonah right now. Think about how scary of a situation this actually is. You've got this big body of water in a hurricane-like situation, and now you're being thrown overboard. I'm telling you what I would have asked the sailors to do. I'd have said, okay, you need to throw me overboard, but before you do it, just kill me, because I don't want to go in that water with this storm and know what kind of death is going to be coming to me. This is the scariest situation that this guy could probably possibly imagine at this point. He belongs to nobody. He is completely all alone. Jonah, in this situation, he is like that kid at college. He goes to college for the first time, and he's away from his family. He's away from his friends. And he's doing whatever he can to just keep on kicking, to keep his head above water. He'll do anything that he possibly can to get somebody to, f- to feel like he can connect with, to belong. If you wonder why kids do stupid stuff at college, they're trying to belong. Jonah's like that mother who, who she's got these kids that she's trying to raise, and it's taken so much of her that these friendships that she had in the past, they seem like they're all gone. And she looks around her, and all of a sudden, a few years later, she just feels utterly alone, like she's completely lost who she was. Jonah's like that guy who... From the time he was 20 years old, he's been in one occupation. And that, that occupation's become a part of who he, what his identity is. It's part of what he, every day that he gets up, that's what he, he, he knows he's supposed to go do. And then retirement comes on. And that first Monday that he's not getting up to go to that job, that identity is lost. He, he's lost who he is. That's where Jonah is. Jonah is lost at sea. He's drowning in the sea like some of us feel like we're drowning in the life that we're living. We're we're completely lost. Our identity is gone. And it's a scary thing. But I I love what God does for Jonah in this story. He actually provides Jonah just a moment. In the midst of this storm, in the midst of the scariest moment of his life, he sends this big fish. And I want you to understand, 
the big fish was not sent to Jonah just to save his life. The big fish was actually sent to Jonah so that he could begin to see life in a different light. What happens is he gets into this, he's, this big fish swallows him and he's in there and he's in there for three days. And while he's in there, he begins to pray to God. And little by little, God starts to get a hold of him in that quiet moment. Everything is quieted around him. He doesn't, he doesn't know that the storm, whether it's still going on or not, God is able to just speak to him. And he starts to show him what salvation really is all about. That Jonah doesn't, doesn't hold on to or give away salvation. It's, it's God's to give. It's not his job to hold back the word of God from the people of Nineveh. And so he, be, he begins to see that. And it says in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 9, that with a, with a song of thanksgiving, I'm going to sacrifice to you. See, Jonah's idea of what life is all about gets upended while he's in this big fish. It's his big fish moment. Everything changes. And what happens at the end is the Lord finally commands the big fish to vomit Jonah out on dry land. And I love the versions that say he vomited him out. I love the idea of a big fish just puking up a human. Whole human. That's pretty cool. But here's something that Jonah discovered. Some of our darkest moments are the very moments that God will use to help us overcome the discontent and doubt that we feel in the world. See, what we think is a lot of times those darkest moments are going to bring us even more discontent. I think God actually use, wants to use those darkest moments to show us more of who he is, more of how he sees the world, to bring us more contentment. In order for us, the skeptical, discontent people that we are, in order for us to become people who feel like we belong and, and that we're not this disconnected, lonely group of people, we have to remember that in our loneliness, God may be trying to change our attitudes so that we can learn what belonging in community is really about. There's just no denying it. Being lonely, it stinks. The, the feeling of really, truly feeling like you're alone in this world, it is an awful feeling. Uh, that feeling when maybe for the first couple months, even first couple years, when you move to a new town, a new community, and you're, you're just trying to find a place where you, where you feel like, People get you. You belong. That's a tough situation to be in. But I think sometimes those situations are our big fish moment. That moment that God is able to get us alone and start to change the way that we think about things and see the world the way that he sees the world. That moment where a, a friend uh, goes against you and, and puts things out there that you've told them that you never wanted out there for other people to see and hear. And it's that moment where you can draw back from people, but it might be that big fish moment that God wants to begin to change the way that you see things in the world. We need to look for our big fish moment in life. That thing that God sends your way that's meant to quiet you, that's meant to separate us from our rebellion. Because remember, that's what, that's what the big fish was about for Jonah. It separated him away from that rebellion he was going towards. And it draws us back into um, seeing the way that God wants us to see things rather than the way that we see things. What is the big fish moment that God is trying to use to change your heart, to change your attitudes so that you can connect with the people around you? I want you to understand this. Loneliness is not the enemy. It is not learning what God wants you to learn in your moments of loneliness that becomes the enemy. There are times in our lives where we're going to be lonely, and sometimes those can actually be sweet times if we let God work in us and actually allow God to be the one that we, we get connected to in a different way. 
So Jonah failed, failed in his first call that God had given him. God said, go to the people of Nineveh. He fails to do it. And so God is a God of many opportunities. And so after this situation with the big fish, he's like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you another call. How is Jonah going to react to it? It says in Jonah chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. He didn't think about it. He obeyed. And the Bible says that for three days, he journeyed around in the city of Nineveh. Now, the city is not so huge that it took him three days to walk around it. What he was doing is he was preaching hardcore to these people. He says, in 40 days, destruction is going to come on you. God's wrath is going to come. But then something crazy happens. Truth is, I don't think it's as crazy as what it may seem to be because it's exactly what Jonah thought was going to happen. In Jonah 3, verse 5, says the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent, and with compassion, turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. Now, what do you think God does when he sees that the people react this way? Of course, God does what he does. He, he shows compassion on them. He doesn't burn the whole city. Now, Jonah, you might think that Jonah's attitude towards the Ninevites was completely turned around in that big fish, but it wasn't. In Jonah chapter 4, it says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. The fact that God would show compassion, it seemed wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord... Take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Yeah, Jonah, don't overreact at all, buddy. I read this, I'm like, man, that dude is messed up. This is like after the 2016 NBA Finals when LeBron beat the Warriors, if I'd have been like, God, just kill me now. <sighs> it's a little over the top, right? Jonah's a little dramatic. But do you see how Jonah is subjecting himself to loneliness? He just had an opportunity where a whole city of 120,000 people have decided to turn to God. And he doesn't realize that he's got connection and belonging right there. He walks away from him. It's right in front of his face. Instead of seeing the Ninevites as brothers and sisters who weren't much different than himself, he chose to see them as the enemy. Even after they had chosen to follow God, to turn to God. Do you ever remember what it's like to be a kid and you're, it's the first day of school and the new kid comes to school and, and he's there? And <clears throat> what is that initial reaction that you remember having when you saw that, first, that kid for the first time? Sometimes, maybe immediately, it was like a good reaction. Some of you are really nice and you're like, oh, I'm going to be nice to the new kid. And then there's other of us who are like, man, that kid's a punk. It's that skeptical attitude. Uh, maybe, maybe they got body odor or they're sucking up to the teacher, they gave you the stink eye in the lunchroom, they're too big, they're too small, they got tattoos, because it happens a lot in third grade. Um, I don't know. But you find, a, you find something to, to not like them. This happens at times. We have tons of stupid reasons why we choose to, to hold people off at an arm's length. I remember one time for me, it was my freshman year in high school, and the kid's name was Paul. He was, he was a new kid that came into town. And... In all honesty, he was a little cocky, but he wasn't a mean guy. He wasn't a jerk. He was just a little confident. 
couple problems. One problem, he, he played basketball. The second problem, he was a point guard. And so immediately, I'm like, I can't like this kid. This kid trying to come into my town and take my job. I'm the, point, I'm the future point guard for this school. Nah, ain't going to happen, bro. That's like what's going on in my head. It took me like two years before I started to just kind of chill out and realize, hey, this kid's actually a pretty cool kid. And by my senior year, he honestly, he was like one of my best friends. But it, it took both of him and me getting over the fact that like, okay, we're not each other's enemy to realize that, that we had something, we had something in common. And actually, the things that we had in common, it brought more connection for us than it did, you know, giving us that, that division that we thought we had, but we had, to, we had to get past it. Sometimes we don't always see the things that we have in common because we're so busy trying to find what we don't like about the other person. Sometimes we're so busy trying to find what we don't like that we're missing all this good stuff. As skeptical, discontent people, one of the things that we have to remember is that the people around you, particularly at church, They're not perfect, but you have the most important thing in common with them that's necessary for true community, and that's Jesus. How many times have you looked around you at the people that you are at church with or that you're at work with or or you're at your kid's soccer game with, and you've looked at them and you've gone, I could never be friends with that person because of fill in the blank. I could never be friends with that guy because all he does is talk about himself. I can never be friends with that woman because all she cares about is her appearance. But if we're honest with ourselves, maybe part of what's going on in there is, okay, I'm actually a little insecure because that guy is super successful and I don't think I'm that successful. I'm actually pretty insecure because that that lady is a pretty confident person and I don't have confidence. If you're looking for people without an issue to connect with, you're going to be looking for the rest of your life. If you're looking for people that you cannot be annoyed with, you're going to be looking for a really long time. If we are going to find this sense of belonging in our lives, we have to stop looking around at the people around us and trying to find something that we don't like about them. What people are you capable of belonging to that right now you want nothing to do with them? Who are you choosing to see as the enemy of God and he's trying to get you to see them as one of his own? This is... I don't know this is something that I struggle with. Maybe none of you do. Maybe you're better than me. But sometimes I think we need to, we need to be reminded of where we ourselves have come from. And actually the writer, uh, uh, Titus chapter three, is trying to, to show that to, to who he's writing to. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. God has put people in your life, in my life, that we are capable of connecting to, that we are capable of belonging to. Sometimes we don't see it. Man, there have been people, Christians that I know, that I look at on the outside, I'm like, man, I got nothing in common with them. There's nothing... But when you've got that Jesus thing in common, it's amazing that some of those kinds of friendships that otherwise nothing is in common, that it can bring something to your life that you never thought you, you, you could get. We have to be careful not to write people off 
as not my people. You know, we look at certain people and we're like, that's not, uh, those aren't my people. That's not my people. Basketball player, those hockey players, they're not my people. Like, we're doing what Jonah did when we look at life that way. Jonah looked at the Ninevites and he thought, they're not my people. And God didn't have that thought. So we get to this place now with Jonah where God is coming back to Jonah. He's like, why are you so angry, Jonah? What is so messed up in your head that you have to be so angry that you think that they don't deserve grace and you do? And what happens is Jonah, he, he kind of literally goes into like little child having a tan, temper tantrum mode. Almost like he goes into a room and he, he goes into the corner of the room and starts crying and sucking his thumb and crying for mom. He goes out of the city. He gets up on a hill. He builds himself a little shelter and he sits at the top of that hill just simply looking out on the city of Nineveh hoping that God will kind of turn back his, his mindset and he will torch the entire city. But he is so bad at building himself a good shelter that he has no shade. And so God graciously grows up this vine on this little shelter and the leaves start to grow and now he's got shade so he can sit there and he can watch the city of Nineveh. But at nighttime, God then brings a worm to eat up this vine and in the morning, you got Jonah waking up and he's mad. And he says in, in chapter four, verse nine, I'm angry enough to die. Again, he's a little dramatic, freaking out in ways that he doesn't need to. And, and the Lord replies this, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it and make, or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left. And on top of that, there's animals there too. This is what the thing I think that should probably make all of us hurt a little bit if it sinks in. Jonah was more angry about losing a shady tree than he was about the possibility of this world losing 120,000 people in a city because he wanted God to take them out. And I think about that, and I think about how I can get so angry when my internet goes out, and it's slow. Yet I can't get that angry when I think about people living in the Himalayan mountains who, who aren't hearing about the, the news about Jesus Christ. I think about how angry I can get when, if my kids were to ever go up into the top kitchen cabinet and grab my dark chocolate with sea salt. I'm telling you, if they, they, they kind of know better. Every time I bring out the chocolate, they're like, Daddy, can I have a piece? No. This is dad's. And sometimes they're like, I'll be like, yeah. And I break off this tiny little section. They know not to take my, but I, get, I can get more mad about somebody taking my chocolate than the thought of kids going to bed at night around this world with hungry stomachs because they haven't had anything. I get more discontent with the things in my life when they affect me directly. But the truth is, there's all these things that we can get discontent with about and skeptical about, but we're often not discontent about the right things. God's provisional grace was given to Jonah for a day. God provided Jonah's needs for one day, but provisional grace doesn't matter at all without having God's eternal grace over sin. See, God's priority is for people to experience the kind of grace that matters most. I want you to think about this. What is the kind of grace that you are looking for from God most in your life? Is it a provisional kind of grace? Is it, God, take care of this need and take care of this one, and as you do that, I'm going to think good of you. I'm going to think well of you. 
But when that doesn't happen, I'm going to think that the world is coming to an end. Or is the kind of grace that we're looking for from God is an eternal grace, a grace that is open for every single person everywhere on this planet at all times? What's the grace we're looking for? If you are looking for a grace that is a, pro, a, a provided kind of grace, this provisional grace, you're not looking for the kind of grace that God is most wanting to give out to people. You're going to be disappointed. One of these things that we as skeptical, discontent people, that one of those things that we've got to remember is that your discontent today is meant to point you to Jesus. Because this world will continue to disappoint you. Only Jesus can fully satisfy you, ever. If you don't want to be discontent with this world, the only hope that you have is to actually put all of your hope in who Jesus is. If my biggest discontentments in this world are the things that I'm not getting on a day-to-day basis, then I'm missing something. The fact that not everything works out the way that it's supposed to, it's supposed to push us to see that we belong to something bigger than a good paycheck, bigger than the comforts of a beautiful home or the comforts of modern technology. We belong to an eternal, perfect, loving God who wants to give us so much more than that. I want to learn to be discontent when I know that there are people out there in this world who don't understand the goodness and grace and incredible eternal love that Jesus has for them. That's what I want to start to become more discontent about. While you may not always have a, 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 or feel a sense of belonging with the world around you, you have an eternal sense of belonging with Jesus. Do you understand that eternal sense of belonging with Jesus? You're never going to be fulfilled completely by what you're going to have in this life, but it really is possible to be continually fulfilled by the one who gives eternal life. Uh, we're just, you guys can come up here. We're, we're just about done. Uh, for those of us who struggle with skepticism, who struggle with discontentment, there is a place for you to feel like you belong. It is important for us to feel like we belong in this world. I've never known somebody who, didn't, who didn't, wasn't in a better place when they found that sense of belonging with people or that sense of belonging with Jesus. It's important. And I'm telling you, God has given us every capability to understand that kind of sense of belonging. Questions for us today. What, what is that big fish moment in your life that God is trying to change your heart so that you can connect with people more or that you can connect with him more? Where is that loneliness that God is trying to grab a hold of you and show you what, what his idea of life is about? What are the people out there that you're capable of belonging to, but Right now, you want nothing to do with them. You see them as enemies when God is trying to say, hey, they're my own. There's someone you can belong to. Are you finding that eternal sense of belonging with Jesus? Where are you at this morning? Are you letting skepticism and discontentment get in the way of your relationships with God and with people? I think what has to happen is at some point, hopefully today, tomorrow, this week, we have to do the thing that Jonah didn't do. Jonah really struggled to see this whole thing in an eternal kind of mindset. The eternal grace of God, that it's for everybody. He struggled to look at things the way that God looks at it. We need to start to look at life through the eyes of Jesus. And as we start to do that, he may just start to, to change the way that we see things with that s- skepticism, 
that discontent. Why don't you pray with me here?